Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is July 21st, 2023, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is, Do You See What I See? Video Laryngoscope for Intubations. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Jeff Jarvis. He is the Chief Medical Officer and Systems Medical Director for the Metropolitan Area EMS Authority in Fort Worth, Texas, also known as MedStar. He is board certified in both emergency medicine and emergency medical services, or EMS. Jeff discusses the application of research in EMS on his podcast, The EMS Lighthouse Project. Welcome to the SGEM, Jeff. Thanks, Ken. It's great for the opportunity to do a little skepticism with you. I like promoting skepticism, but you picked the theme music. Can you explain why you picked this shredding song other than because it's from the best musical era, the 1980s? Clearly, clearly. I, I, there's no reason to be skeptical about that. That's obviously true. Well, you know, we're talking about video laryngoscopy today, and there was an obvious suggestion. So the Bengals video killed the radio star. That's what everybody would go. That's just too obvious. Um, I tried desperately to come up with a Rush song because I'm a huge Rush fan, but they don't have anything fitting. So I came across this great band by the Hunters uh, and Collectors out of Australia. Uh, it came out in 1988, the year I graduated from paramedic school, just guaranteeing it's got to be great music. I just love the simple, raw guitar licks. It was just, um, it just seemed like a great fit to me. Well, I saw the suggestion come up when you suggested this song, Do You See What I See? And honestly, I thought of a Christmas song. Do you hear what I hear? Made famous by Bing Crosby. Um, do you have a favorite Christmas carol? You know, I... It's a great season for me. I like all of the Christmas carols just because it reminds me of good times. But um, I want to mix it up a little bit, kind of take a classic and take a new uh, look at it. I like King and Country's version of Little Drummer Boy. Oh, okay. Um, I'm particular to Tim Minchin's song, White Wine in the Sun. Uh, Tim Minchin is also Australian, ironically. But yeah, uh, White Wine in the Sun, just that's my favorite Christmas song. But I do find it a little odd that when we think back to the classic Christmas songs, many of them were written by Jewish people like Irvin Berlin, White Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. I, irony is deep um, in the season. Absolutely. Well, we're not here to talk about religion. We're here to talk about science. Religion, that's a completely different podcast. So <laughs> why don't you give us a case? You bet. So you're an emergency physician and you're caring for a 65-year-old man. He's got a history of hypertension and diabetes, and he shows up with altered mental status, fever, and labored breathing. You figure out he's septic and in respiratory failure and needs intubation. Your assessment is that he is likely to be a physiologically, but not necessarily anatomically, difficult airway. You've assured appropriate physiologic optimization and pharmacologic preparation, and you're ready to intubate. Should you go for video or direct laryngoscopy? Well, you know, it is the ABCs, right? The A of emergency medicine, airway. Now, I always joke that the emergency medicine alphabet is A, B, C, T. You know, send them to the donut of truth. Absolutely. But we've looked at the issue of intubation multiple times on the SGEM. And the most recent discussion we had about this was the use of Atomidate as an induction agent. And the conclusion from that episode was we're still uncertain if using Atomidate decreases the patient-oriented outcome, the poo, of survival with good neurologic function and critically ill patients requiring emergency endotracheal intubation. You know, it's, it's, I just love that abbreviation of poo. It just makes me smile every time. You can't suppress the 13-year-old in me. <laughs> well, you know, my research interest is in pre-hospital airway management, and y'all have covered pre-hospital intubation before, specifically using superglottic devices for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with PA Missy Carter in SGM episode 247, and then again in episode 396. Now, the take-home message for those two episodes was that the airway is less important in adult out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and we really ought to be focusing more on high-quality CPR and early defibrillation for shockable rhythms and less on the type 
of supraglottic airway device. And we've also looked at using bougies to increase that first pass success rate, and that was discussed on SGM 271. And that episode showed that if you used a bougie, it was associated with an increase in first pass success rate. Now, another interesting concept that we looked at was the option of using POCUS or point of care ultrasound to our various methods that we have of confirming correct placement of the endotracheal tube. And we covered that on SGM 249 with our good friend, PA Chip Lang. We felt that transtracheal sonography or POCUS represents a potential fast and accurate way to help confirm tube placement, but this is in conjunction with other methods. Absolutely. Particularly waveform entitled CO2. Absolutely. Well, you know, when you're talking about intubation first pass success, we know it's important because it is associated with fewer adverse events, particularly hypoxia, hypotension, and cardiac arrest. Traditionally, intubation was performed using direct laryngoscopes or DL, and using those, you move the soft tissues directly, physically out of the way so you can have direct visualization of the larynx, the epiglottis, the vocal cords. And then you had a what you see is what you get process where you could visualize the tube going through the vocal cords. So I'm a traditionalist. Uh, You know, I trained in DL, was brought up in DL and found out recently I am now the oldest person in our department. When did that happen? I was the young gun coming in, but now I'm the old fart. Um, But the challenging part of intubating using DL is usually getting that visualization, getting a good view, seeing the cords and seeing the laryngeal structures. The tube uh, placement, once you got that visualization, the tube placement was pretty easy. But VL has been developed to improve that challenging part of DL, that visualization, being able to see where you need to put the tube. Absolutely. And I think the adage about there ain't no such thing as a free lunch really applies here. We were solving one problem with VL, and that is the difficulty in obtaining good visualization. But it turned out we created another problem, which is the challenge of actually delivering the tube. It can be more challenging because the, uh, the laryngeal structures are indirectly seen. So you're not actually seeing the tube. You're seeing a representation of the tube. And it turns out that that makes tube passage in a lot of cases more challenging. Yeah, it's a different technique than direct visualization. There it is, drop the plastic in the hole. When you're doing it on a screen and you've got to have a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a with the, uh, the technique there to pass the tube with VL. A little English on the A little English. There we go. (laughs) Um, Well, the debate about DL versus VL, it goes back over a decade. And we covered the issue on SGEM number 75 with Dr. Steve Carroll. And that one, we did use that Buggle song, Video Kill Direct Laryngoscopy. Now, do you know why that song is so famous? It, uh, you know, I hate to say this, but I actually saw it the first time. So it was the first song that was ever played on MTV. Yeah. Video killed the radio star. That's correct. Well, just to be clear, I was very, very young at the time. And just to be clear, I was 15. So, um, that's about right. (laughs) That was a randomized control trial from Baltimore shock trauma that we covered. And it was comparing the two modalities, the VL versus DL, And the primary outcome was no statistical difference in survival to hospital discharge between those two groups. And so our SGEM bottom line, and remember, this is like almost a decade ago, our SGEM bottom line at that time was that VL leads to the same outcome as DL in trauma patients. VL takes a little longer to accomplish this and may be associated with higher mortality in patients with severe head trauma. However, this relationship will require more study to confirm. My, how things can change. Well, you know, the, the literature, I really do think the literature comparing first pass between DL and VL is mixed. And a large part of the reason for the mixed is people take a little while to get used to new technologies and learn how to use them. So when you're looking at the literature, the early trials with VL demonstrated either no improvement with VL or superiority with DL, much like what was going on in Baltimore. Now, other trials, particularly later ones, once we've developed experience and fine-tuned techniques, 
those are starting to demonstrate improvements with VL. And as the availability and experience with VL has grown, the question remains, does DL or VL use result in higher first-pass success? Yeah, so you're getting to our clinical question. So why don't we explicitly state what the clinical question we're going to try to answer on today's episode. Absolutely. In adult patients, needing intubation in either an emergency department or an ICU is first-pass success higher with direct laryngoscopy or video laryngoscopy. And what reference do you have to try to answer this question? So this is Dr. Precker and his colleagues, and the title of the paper is Video versus Direct Laryngoscopy for Tracheal Intubation of Critically Ill Patients. This was the DEVICE trial, and it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine this year. All right, let's run through the PCOT. What was the population of interest? They looked at adult patients, and they defined that as 18 years or older, that was seen in one of 17 academic emergency or ICU departments who needed endotracheal intubation regardless of the reason they needed to be tubed. And so the obvious exclusion was children, so anyone under the age of 18, but they did exclude pregnant patients, and this is a pet peeve of mine. Yeah. I understand why, for practical reasons, they excluded prisoners, but there was a couple of subjective ones in there. They said, if there was inadequate time to allow for study randomization and enrollment, that's, you know, I understand things can move quickly, Yeah, but you could game that a bit. And then they also could exclude patients if, in the opinion of the treating physician, there we go, opinion-based medicine, um, that there wasn't equipoise anymore, that one was clearly superior than the other. And and that's a real judgment call. But remember, we're talking about critically ill patients that were intubated in the ED or the ICU. So they didn't do any pre-hospital intubations. They weren't included in the study. And they didn't have intubations performed in the operating room. Interestingly, they did have, I don't think it was a very large number, they didn't explicitly list the number, but they did have some pre-hospital providers, clinicians, doing the intubation. But as you point out, they were in the emergency department or the ICU. So I think that really limits the um, generalizability of this to pre-hospital medicine. Yeah, I don't think you can get outside the walls with this one. It is interesting when you talked about um, the issues of Um, whether you felt DL or VL was clearly superior. This is one of these issues. It's a lot like excluding pregnant women. I don't like it either, but I do understand it's one of the realities that I think we probably have to deal with in exchange for working in a system that uses IRBs to assure that we're not uh, taking advantage of patients. And it's one of the, much like Imtala for us down here, uh, it meant well and has taken on a life of its own. I think the issue is if you are, you can only do a randomized trial if you are at equipoise, meaning you don't know that one of these two options is cle- uh, clearly superior or inferior. And in this case, I think the IRB probably insisted that if the treating clinician felt that one was clearly better or worse, they had to exclude them. The result of that limits our ability to generalize, and I don't much like it, but I think I at least understand it. No, I understand it as well, but you can see how someone who's uh, really skilled uh, at one modality or the other is going to say, you know what, in my clinical judgment, they clearly need to go DL, which means I don't want to be uh, randomized into a VL case. You know, or, or vice versa. versa. Yeah. You know, you're really good at VL. You've been trained in VL. You came up through residency through VL and you're like, oh, well, this one obviously needs VL. It would, it would be nice if what they did is post randomization, uh, that they had videos and, uh, they had some kind of form that they collected with regards to what was the thought process and a video of the actual case so that it could be adjudicated later and have some kind of uh, measure to look at, Sure. okay, you know, was that reasonable or not? Yeah. But you, you compared it to pregnancy. So I'm wondering why you think that IRB would have trouble saying one modality would be clearly better than another, that we can't randomize pregnant women. Yeah. I don't think that it is an issue of equipoise for pregnant women. I think it is an issue much like prisoners of Uh, vulnerable populations. Now, again, this is not necessarily me agreeing with this because I think pregnant women are a pretty important part of the population that need healthcare too. And we need to have evidence to drive our practice. So I don't necessarily like it, 
but I believe the reason that they're doing it is they look at this as a vulnerable population, much like pediatrics. And if you just go back not too long ago to when the world stopped spinning and COVID was plaguing our land, when you're looking at the early trials of the vaccines, pregnant women and children were excluded from the first part of those trials. And it turned out to lead to huge problems. But that is a fairly standard exclusion for IRBs, again, whether I like it or not. So is it that they're protecting vulnerable patients? And this is getting way off topic. <laughs> and, I, you know, is it protecting vulnerable populations or is it lazy? Is it just, you know, like it's easy to just say, we'll exclude pregnant people. And are those people who are making those decisions, you know, what's the uh, demographic makeup mm-hmm. of... Uh, the IRB. Um, Almost certainly, yeah. Is it, is it majority <laughs> of older men who have never been pregnant by definition? So, you know, if you had an IRB that was representative of the population of interest, you know, the people that were being studied sure, or, or that um, had enough representation of women that had been pregnant, maybe they would think that this is ethical and that it, you know, that we actually need information and stop trying to protect us as vulnerable. We're not vulnerable. We're pregnant. Absolutely. It's, it's, you know, it's not a disease. And so I, you know, I'm getting way off topic here and I, I shouldn't be speaking for them. Well, I think it's reasonable. I think that there are several things we can look at in terms of improving our IRB process Um, that I think would be one of them. The issue with children, I think would be another. And because my research focus is on pre-hospital medicine, the way we have to go about doing consent or using EFIC, for example, exception from informed consent can definitely be improved. I think it is dramatically limiting the amount of research we can do. Again, I think they mean well, but the downstream consequence is probably not worth the protection. Well, you know what? The road to hell is paved on. So um, speaking of uh, letters or words that start with the letter I, um, we are 17 minutes into this and we haven't even gotten to the, what's the intervention? So what, what was the intervention? First attempt intubation using a direct laryngoscope. And I have to say here that this is arbitrary who you assign to intervention and comparison, but one arm was direct laryngoscope for first attempt intubation. Yeah, so I used um I could have used uh the VL. You're absolutely right. We could have flipped this the other way. So, uh what was the comparison? It was first attempt intubation using a video laryngoscope. Interestingly, for VL with standard geometry blades in which direct visualization of the airway structures is possible, operators were instructed to look at the video screen, not use the device as a direct laryngoscope. So maybe I uh, did that intervention and comparison subconsciously because, you know, VL is what is really being used most of the time that I see in hospital setting. And so, uh, and pre-hospital, you know, a lot of superglottic, a lot of eye gels, stuff like that. So in hospital, I'm seeing VL done way more. And it seems to be that's the common procedure and the intervention. The different one would be the uh, direct linger. Again, how did I become the old guy? Yeah. I just want to put a note in here that the the use of a bougie, the stylet, the blade geometry um, in both groups was at the discretion of the treating physician. And if they were going to do a second attempt again, that was at the discretion. How the how the procedure was going to go and what tools they were going to use was at the discretion of the treating physician. And that makes sense because we're the measure, our primary output here, primary outcome is first pass success. So getting a little ahead of ourselves. So it does make sense to study the first attempt. Yeah. So what, what is that primary outcome? So it was first pass success and the definition they used, I think is a little unique. It was defined by a successful two passage on the first attempt at laryngoscopy and a single attempt to pass the ET tube or bougie. So that is different than what I think most studies of first pass success use as a definition. It sounds like you're getting into a bit of the talk nerdy section. So back off there, mister. All, all right, right. All right. <laughs> let's, talk so about, exciting. let's talk about the secondary outcomes. Outcomes. Absolutely. So severe complications, and they defined this as an SpO2 of under 80%, systolic blood pressure of less than 65 new or increased use of pressors, cardiac arrest, and death. 
and that defined as the peri-intubation period. And they chose the definition between induction and two minutes after intubation. And note that the time period here to define peri-intubation, it varies widely in the literature. There's not really a right answer, but it does make it kind of hard to compare between different studies when you don't have a standard definition. All right. So uh, what type of study was this? This was a multi-center, non-masked, pragmatic, randomized control trial. Okay, so the author's conclusions were, quote, among critically ill adults undergoing tracheal intubation in an emergency department or intensive care unit, the use of video laryngoscope resulted in a higher incidence of successful intubation on the first attempt than the use of a direct laryngoscope, end of quote. All right, let's run through the quality checklist for RCTs. First question, are we talking about emergency department patients here? Yes, sort of. So about 70% of patients in this trial were intubated in the emergency department, but 30% were intubated in the ICU. So it's the majority of patients. Correct. The patients, were they adequately randomized? I think they were. So randomization was done on a one-to-one basis using block permutation, and it was stratified by trial site. And did they conceal the process that they used to randomize the groups? The process they did. Assignments were kept in an opaque envelope and known to the clinical team only upon opening after the patient was enrolled. I always have a little bit of issues with opaque envelopes. It would be nice (laughs) if they use some electronic generated thing that couldn't be held up to a bright light, not saying that they did that or steamed open and, you know, I'm not saying any of that happened. I'm just saying when I see opaque envelopes, not that I don't love the 1980s, but it seems (laughs) 1980s ish. All right. So what's a, what's a mail, what's mail? Is that snail mail? (laughs) Exactly. So were the patients analyzed into the groups to which they were randomized? Yes, this was an intention-to-treat analysis. And were the patients recruited consecutively? You know, I'm not sure. I looked through both the paper, the method section clearly. I looked through the appendices, and it was not clear to me if it was consecutive. The implication is that recruitment was done with consecutive patients, but that was just an implication. Yeah, we're trying to guard against selection bias with that question. Clearly. Six, the patients in both groups, were they similar with with respect to prognostic factors? Yes, they were. The two groups appeared to be roughly similar, which would indicate randomization was successful. And there weren't any gross differences, at least that were apparent on um, just looking at it. Now, the primary outcome was the unadjusted difference. They did do a sensitivity analysis where they calculated the difference adjusted for the following baseline covariance, age and sex, BMI, operator experience defined as the number of primary intubations or prior intubations, the location of the intubation, meaning whether it was done in the ED or the ICU. And there was no difference in the unadjusted outcome and the adjusted outcome. And that seems to strengthen the argument that any differences that might've been unmeasured between the groups didn't impact outcome. Yeah. Question six can be a bit problematic at times because randomization can be lumpy. It it oscillates around that true number. And and so sometimes just by chance alone, you'll get differences in groups. The The issue comes up about the adjusted analysis, and Mm -hmm. the adjusted analysis should be stated a priori so you know what you're going to adjust so you can't sort of game the system and then start probing and looking and trying to figure out stuff after the fact post hoc. So as long as you've said, listen, before we do this, we're going to consider where this intubation was done, whether it was done in the emergency department or the ICU. And we think maybe the age of the patient, the BMI, operator experience. Anyways, we're going to adjust for those things afterwards in a sensitivity analysis in case some of them um, could impact what happened. So Question six is somewhat problematic at times. You know, the thing about it that you said is a priori, and this really goes to uh, emphasize how important it is for your randomized control trials to publish your methods before you do the trial and then stick to those. So if you go to um, the website where you can look at what their, their protocol is and then look at the final 
published paper, did they stick to that protocol or did they change some things? And if they change some things, it certainly makes you wonder, geez, why did they change it? Did they change it because they weren't getting the results they wanted or did they have a good reason for changing it? Yeah. So it just should pique your skeptical radar and say, listen, I'm going to take a closer look at this because there can be good reasons to change your protocol. I mean, things happen during the course of doing your research. Research is tough. So I don't want to be too hard on researchers, but I'm going to be harder on uh, journals and editors because I think we shouldn't, as the readers have to go, oh, I wonder what they said they were going to do in uh, in clinicaltrials.gov website, uh, see if their primary and secondary outcomes match up. I want to see if their methodology held up. I think that should be a job of peer reviewers and editors, and those peer reviewers and editors should be paid appropriately. Oh, I'm, man, I am getting on a rant today. That's all right. I was about to jump right on it with you. <laughs> but they should be paid appropriately for their time, effort, and expertise to point out those things. And it shouldn't be the end user that goes, oh, well, they didn't mention anything about this. So maybe I will start doing some digging and to find out if they publish their methods a priori and all that kind of stuff. I think that should happen way upstream before it gets to the end user. Absolutely. And in this case, they did. They actually have a published uh, methods paper where they discuss their protocols. Again, you're getting ahead of me. You're getting into the nerdy section. Back off, mister. Back off. All right, let's get back to this quality checklist. Again, we're at number seven here. Okay, so uh, this is getting to the point of masking. Traditionally, it was called blinding, but uh, trying to move the terminology and language to masking. We're all participants masked to group assignment. That means the patients, the clinicians, the outcome assessors, were they unaware of group allocation? They were not. If you were masking the operator to the type of device in their hand, that might have been challenging. You want to keep your eyes open when you're tubing. It might be helpful. (laughs) All groups, were they treated (laughs) equally except for the intervention? Yes, they were. And did they have good follow-up? Yes, although the trial was terminated early. Okay, stop. You're not going to get into that issue because we're going to talk about that too. See how I I, I preempted that quickly. All right. So (laughs) all patient important outcomes, do you think they were considered? So... Yes and no. So the primary outcome is a process measure, but it is an important and appropriate surrogate measure for this comparison. Adverse events are more patient-oriented, and this was a secondary outcome as as opposed to the primary outcome, much like Highlander. There can be only one. And they chose first pass. They also didn't seem to collect or report survival with good neurologic function, which I think you would have a pretty good case, is the most important patient-oriented outcome. Well, I'm impressed that you got the Highlander quote in there. Indeed. Primary outcome or Princess Bride. Primary? I don't think of that word (laughs) means what you think it means. You keep using that word. Um, (laughs) But you miss the opportunity to say poo during patient-oriented outcome. You miss the poo. I regret that miss. All right. I will do better next time. We will go to number 11, my second favorite number after five. Uh, The treatment effect, was it large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? So I think we might go with yes, statistically, and no, I sure would have liked to see more data. So the trial was terminated early, if I can say that now, uh, because of superiority of VL. And I'm not really sure how to say that without jumping ahead. So I will go with the the treatment effect, maybe. So it was st- adequate for statistical comparisons, but I would have liked to have seen them enroll all of the patients that they set out to do. Well, it's okay to mention that it was terminated early, but we're going to ah. dig into that into the nerdy section. I'm, I'm going to give you know enough information there that people are going to go, hey, can I hit fast forward on this? You want me to just read that, what we got there? No, no, that's okay. Okay. Uh, I I will uh, go ahead and uh, finish off the quality checklist and then we'll do the results. And then I'm so concrete sequential and then we'll talk nerdy. All right. So final question, financial conflicts of interest. There were no disclosed conflicts that would likely impact the study. It was a funded study. It was funded by the United States Department of Defense and the methods were declared in advance on clinicaltrials.gov and they were published separately. The methods were not obviously different between the pretrial disclosure and the final paper. Okay, results section. Thousand patients were included in the pre-planned interim analysis. 
The median age was 55, so young patients. See, definition of young is based on my age. Anything younger than me is young. Anything older than me is old. So these were young patients. Two-thirds were male patients. And the majority, 70% of the intubations were done in the emergency department, with about a quarter of them being done for sepsis or septic shock and another quarter for traumatic injuries. The most common indication for intubation were altered mental status, 45% of the patients, and acute respiratory failure, 30% of the patients. So those are the patients we're talking about. What was the key result? First pass success rate, it was more common in the VL group when compared to the DL group. All right, and let's get some numbers on that. And so for that primary outcome, if you could give us some numbers, but you know, you can skip the confidence intervals because these were statistically significant. Yep. And I do like the fact that they gave us confidence intervals rather than p-values. So first pass success for VL was 85.1%. And with DL, it was 70.8. And simple math there will give you an unadjusted absolute difference of 14.3%. And that was statistically significant. And so that 14% absolute difference gives you a number needed to tube with VL for first pass success. So the NNT for tubing of seven. Yeah. How about the secondary outcomes? So there were a lot of secondary outcomes. We'll put those in the show notes so that you can look at them. There were a couple that stood out to me. First, the one that was most important, I think, to the patients for their poo was severe complications. No difference there. Of the rest, they generally favored video laryngoscopy. And specifically, when you were discussing the Baltimore trial, in that case, DL was quicker for intubation. And in this case, VL was quicker. The other thing I want to point out is the difference in first pass success based on your definition. I've heard people complaining about the low first pass success in this paper. And that's obviously a subjective judgment, but I do think it's important to understand what definition you were using. So the old definition was in general about 5% higher than the new definition. It was 90% versus 77%. Yeah. And the absolute difference between those two was 13%. So again, that gives you a number needed to tube um, favoring VL of about eight there. So... All right. Well, let's get into the talk nerdy section because you've been chomping at the bit this whole <laughs> podcast to talk nerdy to me. So why don't you go first and start talking nerdy? You bet. So first off, let's talk about consecutive patients. So neither the paper nor the methods specify whether they were enrolling consecutive patients. The implication is that it was done with consecutive patients, but it didn't say that. There were no time limits, meaning the day or hours were noted. So some trials do convenience enrollment only when you have research assistants there as the sun is warming the earth. They didn't mention anything about that. So I don't know if they were enrolling patients throughout the day. Assignment envelopes were consecutively numbered, but the manuscript doesn't specifically indicate that consecutive patients were enrolled. I like that phrase you used while the sun was warming the earth. I've used um, the term banker's hours, and I don't know if that's insulting to bankers. But I think they'll uh, when, get over it. When, oof, yeah, well, I know how they'll get over it, counting <laughs> their money. Um, but the, oh my goodness, I'm going to get hate mail from all the people that, uh, all the bankers that listen to the SGM, all of them. Well, you could jump in one. and say they would be counting our money. <laughs> yeah, that would be. But um, the idea that when the sun is warming the earth, that might be quite restricted uh, during the winter months in some parts of Canada. Yeah. I went to medical school in Calgary and, you know, you'd get up and go to school and it would be dark and you'd come home and it would be dark. And still that could be from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. And I'm just guessing what those hours of the day are. But yeah. we get limited sunlight during the uh, winter months. And then during the summer, it's like, wow, it's 11 o'clock at night and it's still sunny out. There's still some daylight. It's just glorious. So, yeah, yeah so, so uh, that could be variable depending on where the research was done. It all depends, baby. It all depends. All right. So um, second nerdy point I wanted to talk about was this whole issue of early termination. There are many reasons why a trial could be stopped early. It could be stopped early for harm. So there's ethical reasons for benefit. Again, for ethical reasons, because you're you know, denying a care that could uh, be applied to other people. And so you're putting the control group at risk. Uh, you can stop it early because you know what? We've just been grinding away at this and it's futile. 
And sometimes uh, we ran out of money. Studies uh, can run out of money or the principal investigator uh, leaves <laughs> uh, the institution that can ha- like, so there are reasons, right? Sure. They just need to be explained and stopping trials. When they do this, they stop the trial early. It can raise uncertainty and lowers the precision because you don't have as big a sample size around that point estimate. Early termination for benefit, that tends to overinflate the effect size, among other problems. And I'll put a link in the show notes that discusses that. There was a systematic review and meta-analysis looking at stopping trials early for benefit. And if they dichotomize them into industry-funded studies versus non-industry-funded studies, do you want me to, do you want to guess, Jeff, uh, what happened? Let me see. The industry is purely benevolent and uh, they underestimated the benefit of their very expensive product. Did I get that right? I'm going to have to put an alert. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Sarcasm alert. Sarcasm <laughs> exactly. alert. Um, yeah, no, they found that uh, industry studies uh, in the systematic review were more likely to be stopped early for benefit. Now, again, it is completely appropriate to stop a trial early for benefit. That can happen. But the rationale should be determined and published a priori. So we know in advance what what kind of parameters they're putting up, what will trigger that to happen. And it was, was it rigorous? Did they set the bar high to do that? And that's exactly what these researchers did. They published their methods. They posted it on clinicaltrials.gov. They published their methods separately in another publication. So they did it the correct way. And there are also guidelines, though, that can help and assist researchers to determine when to terminate trials early. And, you know, if you're interested in this, I'll put more than a half a dozen references into the show notes if you want to take a deep dive and read into this further. It's a great topic. So one other thing in, to talk nerdy about that I think is really important to understand is that the effects that we're seeing in this trial are almost certainly operator dependent rather than device dependent. So there is certainly some selection bias that could have been introduced based on the exclusion criteria. If the treating clinician did not think equipoise existed, the critically ill patients would not be enrolled. Well, this is subjective and it may have impacted the results. And I mentioned earlier that the treating clinician could decide what to use. Were they going to use a bouger, you know, the stylet, their blade geometry, all of that stuff. And then if they were going to try a second attempt out of necessity, what technique were they going to use for that second attempt? But that was true for both groups. But I think an important thing is that this study started in March 2022. It seems so long ago. That was That was in the middle of COVID. And many places had introduced policies requiring treating clinicians to use VL instead of DL. And this could have impacted how some clinicians were used to using DL, and then they were (laughs) gently nudged uh, to performing VL. Absolutely. You know, we're talking about how this is operator dependent. And honestly, I think at this point, when we're talking about current trainees, VL has a clear advantage over first pass success with DL. I think that's what this trial tells us. I think recent systematic reviews and meta-analyses will tell us the same thing. I think this is almost certainly a function of the operator's familiarity and experience with VL versus DL. Now, visualization Almost every paper we see it is clearly better with VL. Those operators with little prior overall experience or little experience with DL did better with VL. We can't extrapolate these results, and this is a really important point for those of us oldsters who still feel very comfortable with DL. We cannot extrapolate these results to the highly experienced clinicians who are really good with DL. Now, we also cannot extrapolate this to anesthesiology. Number one, most anesthesiologists are in the DL boat for reasons that I'm not entirely clear on, but they seem to be way more experienced with DL. But most importantly, this study specifically excluded patients in the OR. Now, interestingly, there were no subgroups in this study where DL showed an advantage. And the only thing, the only thing that said, DL and VL are the same was operator experience. So the fourth nerdy point we wanted to talk about was this idea of first pass success and the definition that they used. And you sort of teased that earlier in this show. 
So their full definition for first pass success was, quote, placement of an endotracheal tube in the trachea following a single insertion of the laryngoscope blade into the mouth and either a single insertion of an endotracheal tube into the mouth or a single insertion of a bougie into the mouth followed by a single insertion of the endotracheal tube into the mouth. So this is like you got one shot at it. Now they compared this new first pass success definition to what most of us are used to thinking of first pass success. And that is when the tube is through the cords with one laryngoscope insertion, but it's regardless of the number of attempts to pass that tube or bougie. So you're in the mouth, but you might be trying multiple times when you're in the mouth. And that's the distinction. At the end of the day, the difference in definition is roughly 5%, so one in 20, but when you look at the delta, the difference between the two, the new definition had a absolute difference of 14%, whereas the traditional definition, while had a greater success rate for both modalities, it was a 13% absolute difference. So it was still much more likely to have first pass success, number needed to treat of either seven or eight, irregardless of which uh, definition that you used. Absolutely. And that 5%, I think, is important. This group of authors published another paper, maybe a week before the device trial came out, in which they used two separate data sets and they compared first pass success using the two definitions. And oddly enough, the difference was about 5%. We are trying desperately to uh, reach a way where we can measure this in our system, and we're finding a difference of around 5%. So three different data sets, all showing that this change in definition drops your first pass success by about 5%. Doesn't guarantee it's true, but I think we're getting, there probably is something accurate about this. But does that 5% have any clinical meaning? And that's, you know, like, so you're saying first pass success, whether you're going in once and, and, and thrusting the tube forward or the bougie forward one time, in this new definition and the old definition, you, you got open and into the mouth, but you were able to try multiple attempts. And, and so if there's a 5% difference with regards to that first pass success rate, just based on definition alone, I'm less interested in first pass success rate. And I'm more interested in how the patient did. And that gets into the, the fifth nerdy point, because I'm interested in patient oriented outcomes. Absolutely. Well, first pass is definitely a surrogate measure, but I do think it is an appropriate one given its association. And this is definitely an association. There is no causation here because I doubt our friends in the IRB are going to authorize a paper where we intentionally miss an intubation. But there is an association that's fairly clear between first pass and adverse events. It's an inverse relation to be uh, clear. So first pass, I think, is necessary but not sufficient for safe intubation. They do have a number of secondary outcomes with some being monitor-oriented, meaning pulse ox and systolic blood pressure. Some were subjective, like the need for vasopressors, and others were pretty objective, like, say, death. They also had 11. Now, that's 11 exploratory outcomes. Ken, I understand that is your second favorite number. I'm getting excited. Yes, 11. So glad to to help. Now, unfortunately, with those 11, they did not seem to have the one that I think is most important. That is survival with good neurologic function. And it, and it may have been a, a small number. And so sure. that may have been a small number. And then they would have had to power the trial for that small number. And so they use these surrogate markers to sort of get to it. But it would have been nice if they had collected that information. Sure. And and maybe they did. Maybe they did. We, you know, like I, again, I'm not going to be too hard on the researchers because they could have collected that information at some point, perhaps. Uh, and reviewer number two, our good friend, reviewer number two um, said no or something. I don't know. That's, that's the that's the honest intellectual answer. I don't know if they collected it or not. I, I can tell you one of my papers was uh, I reported p-values in addition to confidence intervals on a difference. Reviewer number three down here, it's always reviewer number three that is the jerk. He said, take that out. And in this case, I sort of agree with him. He said, take that out. So I took it out, published it without p-values, and then got ripped up in a lot of reviews because I was hiding things by not publishing p-values. I think this is one of those situations where you just can't win. 
Damned if you do. Damn. Oh my goodness, I don't want to lose my iTunes rating. I'll, I'll be very Canadian. Sorry about that that <laughs> language there, eh? All right. So that's the result. Or sorry. So that's the talk nerdy section. Let's comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the S gems conclusions. You know, I think the author's conclusions. I think they're fair, and I think they're supported by both the trial, uh, their evidence, and I think they're reasonable. And so, what's the S gem bottom line? Clinicians should use the device they are most comfortable with and most experienced with. If they're highly experienced with DL and very successful with them, UBU, keep right on doing it. If what you're doing is not working, consider doing something differently. And so how are you going to resolve the case that you presented then? What device are you going to reach for? Are you VL or DL? So what I personally am VL, uh, I made the transition about 10 years ago. I feel very comfortable, particularly with hyperangulated blades, but, uh, and I've been using them almost exclusively. So I'm going to reach for VL because at this point I am now more experienced with it and I'm very comfortable with it. Uh, your mileage can definitely differ though. And I think because these results are so operator dependent and so dependent with um, your experience, you should probably use what you're good at. Now, I will tell you, even in the group that was highly experienced with DL, they did not show an advantage with DL. They just showed that there was no difference. Yeah. And so this gets back to the classic evidence-based medicine answer. It all depends. And so I would, in this case, reach for DL and my experience is because I'm very well trained on DL, but with the introduction of VL, I do a lot of different shifts at various critical mm -hmm. access hospitals. And I found that the various hospitals either didn't have VL there, or they had a different machine or device at each site. And so I'd, I did not want to be in a critical situation going, hey, which VL machine do you have and how do I turn it on? Like, I don't want to be fumbling around, you know, it's, I'm, I'm in the market for getting a, uh, my own personal bedside ultrasound portable mm. machine. Cause again, I go to all of these yeah. different sites and I just feel like I'm fumbling around with their ultrasound machine because it's not standardized. And, you know, with your, when you're doing an ultrasound, um, it's usually not that critical as in, you know, intubation. And so when it comes down to that high acuity and, um, high risk situation, I've, I've gravitated or not gravitated, but stuck with the DL out of some necessity because I know that at, at these different centers, they may not have VL or the sure. VL is something that I haven't trained on. And I'll tell you the way uh, we were using my last hospital, we had Glidescopes and CMAX and my EMS agency used the channeled King Vision. And I felt like if I was going to have them use that, I should use that. So I took my own channeled King Vision with me to every ER shift. And the devices are now, I think for most VL devices, most of them are actually cheaper than most ultrasound devices. Um, so I think that it is now something that you can do. On the other hand, again, if you're experienced with DL and you're good with it, there's not really a reason to change. So clinical application, what are you going to do? So video laryngoscopes have added a new tool to the clinician's airway management toolbox. Now VL, particularly with hyperangulated blades, make visualization easier, but may make tube passage harder. Techniques for tube passage are different with these blades and clinicians must learn these techniques. Now DL obviously works as well as it always has. And if that's the technique you're familiar and comfortable with, keep doing what you're good at. Now I would caution against subjective assessment of a provider's success though, because when it comes to intubation, almost all clinicians are like the children from Lake Wobegon. They're all above average. Yeah. So some people may not know the Lake uh, Wobegon uh, reference. So, oh, that's sad. Yeah. Well, so he, here we are doing some knowledge translation. So, <laughs> Lake Wobegon uh, is a fictional town created by Garrison Keller as a setting of a recurring segment called News from Lake Wobegon. And it was a radio program for a Prairie Home Companion broadcast out of St. Paul's, Minnesota. And uh, Garrison would typically end his show with saying, quote, that's the news from Lake Wobegon, where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children 
are above average. I grew up listening to that show and just absolutely love it. So every time I'm talking about trust but verify, I think about that quote. So what are you going to tell the emergency physician that uh, is wondering, should I go VL or DL? So I think they ought to use the device they're most experienced and successful with. So according to this paper, if you have limited prior intubations, and they define that as under 100, and most of those were with VL, you should almost certainly stick with VL. If you have lots of experience with DL and a little experience with VL, then DL is probably still the better option for you. Okay, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner. And last week's winner was Dr. Cindy Bitter. She is a longtime listener and multiple Keener Contest winner. She knew the trial for a universal flu vaccine using mRNA technology platform is in a phase one trial. So Cindy, thank you so much. I really look forward to getting your emails. Um, And so I'm sending you out one of the new skeptical prizes. Jeff, you've got a question for us? So my question is, what was the first paramedic-level system in the United States to practice endotracheal intubation? Okay, so I'll just reiterate. You're looking for the first paramedic-level system in the U.S. to practice endotracheal intubation. Now, do you know if it's the first in the world? I do not. Okay, so this this is specific to the U.S. Correct the first paramedic level system in the United States to practice endotracheal intubation. If you know the answer, then send an email to me at the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive one of our new cool skeptical prizes. And I'm going to send one to you, Jeff, of course, for being such a wonderful guest skeptic. Outstanding. I look forward to it. All right. Well, there's only one thing left to do. And you grew up in the Midwest, it sounds like, listening to that uh, Lake Wobegon uh, story or radio program. So you're going to have to give the SGEM tagline and just throw yourself into it. You can't use an East Texas accent. You've got you've to use your Midwestern accent to read the SGEM tagline. You bet. Well, it turns out I am, Garrison Keeler was uh, nationwide. I am 100% uh, an East Texan. Oh, so, oh, well, then give me your East Texan. Hey, y'all, remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time.